This is episode 90 of the Swallow Your Pride podcast, and today's guest is Dr. Michael Crary. He is an ASHA fellow. He's received ASHA honors of the association, and he is a professor at the University of Central Florida. He has over 42 years in clinical and research experience, and he is still active in both worlds. He has over 100 peer-reviewed publications and has contributed to five textbooks, with the most relevant being The Grower and Crary, Dysphagia Management in Adults and Children. And according to his bio, he said most of the other stuff is fluff, but I don't believe any of it is fluff. So thank you, Dr. Query, for being on this episode, and I hope you all enjoy it as much as I did. Welcome to the Swallow Your Pride podcast. I'm your host, Teresa Richard. I'm a board-certified specialist in swallowing and swallowing disorders, and I know firsthand how much confusing and conflicting information there is out there about how we assess and treat swallowing disorders. This podcast is all about bringing everyone together, getting on the same page, being open to new ideas, and using evidence-based treatment strategies for our patients with dysphagia. So let's get into it. Just a quick disclaimer that all statements and opinions expressed in this episode do not reflect on the organizations associated with the speakers and are their own opinions solely. All right, and one more thing, and in honor of what is this, May, which is Better Speech and Hearing and Swallowing Month, we can add in. Medbridge has agreed to do their awesome promo deal for listeners of Swallow Your Pride. So if you go to medbridgeeducation.com and click on their premium plan and enter promo code SYP at checkout, you can get a year's worth of their premium plan for only 95 bucks. So why is this such a killer deal? Because it's usually $425. And I think they have some incredible awesome courses. So really high quality courses for ASHA CEUs. I I believe they have over 500 of them now. They're just growing, expanding rapidly of all topics. And I just checked this morning, some of the more recent topics they're including now is PDPM, which I know we're all freaking out about (laughs) come this fall with how that's going to impact our profession. Also, if you're a home health SLP, they have tons of series on Oasis too, which I know can be really tricky because it's nothing you learn about until you're thrown into home health. And let's see, they have a lot of new aphasia courses on spaced retrieval, the life participation approach, lots of dementia material. Their voice courses are awesome. I know they're incredibly reputable and high quality. Counseling, which we don't get much of in grad school, head and neck cancer, motor speech. I know Dr. Michelle Trochet, I'm super impressed with her motor speech series that she has on here. And also about cough dysfunction, which I think is so important that a lot of us don't learn too much about. Also, courses on trachs and motivational interviewing. So just some really cool courses on there. So they're at medbridgeeducation.com. You can go to forward slash SYP, or you can just go to the premium plan and add the promo code enter SYP, and you'll get that premium plan for only 95 bucks. Now, what's the difference between the premium plan and the education plan, which is normally 95 bucks, is with the premium plan, you also get access to their home exercise builder, which is awesome. You can go in, you can click exercises for your patients to do. Your patients can get a login to log in from home and see descriptions of all the exercises that you give them. They have some really good patient handouts. They also have a mobile app. So you get all these extra features in addition to over 500 courses that are all registered for ASHA CEUs. So if you're interested, go to medbridgeeducation.com forward slash SYP or enter SYP for the promo code for the premium plan. And you can access this premium plan for one full year for 95 bucks. So when you do use promo code SYP, just know that I do get a small commission that goes right back into keeping this wonderful podcast going. So this special will be going through till the end of the month. So take advantage of it if you can. Hello, Dr. Crary. Hello, Ms. Richards. How are you? I'm wonderful. How are you? (laughs) I'm still vertical. Excellent. Still above ground. Excellent. We are so happy to have you here today. How many times have I begged you to do this? How many times have other people begged you to do this? Many times. I'm sorry for being (laughs) such a slacker. You're not a slacker. It's okay. (laughs) It's okay. It's okay. I know it's it's a new concept. So welcome. Welcome to 2019. So (laughs) the cyber world does scare me. I'll be honest. (laughs) All right. Well, tell the people a little bit about yourself. Oh, goodness. Well, I'm entering my 42nd year post-PhD. Not that you're counting. Not that I'm actually, I'm looking forward to the end. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, the whole ride, I've been both a clinician 
and at times a researcher. I've also been an administrator uh, for about 11 years. And, uh, but mostly I, I'm, the thing I'm most proud about that I've never not engaged in clinical practice. Excellent. I think that is the hallmark. And when I look back, I'll say that's the thing that I'm most proud of. Awesome. I've always been a practicing clinician. Awesome. All right. Well, what are we going to talk about today? How about we talk about the McNeil dysphagia therapy program? The infamous McNeil dysphagia therapy program. It seems to be on people's minds today. It is. Yeah. (laughs) You know, I have to laugh because my my kid with Giselle that we're an overnight success. Yes. (laughs) We've only been doing this for almost 20 years now. I have to laugh. It's been an interesting journey. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's like what most people, you know, like most rock stars or athletes are like, you're an overnight success. And it's like, well, I've been doing this for 30 years. So yeah. <laughs> so yeah. All right. Yeah. We're very pleased and humble that people are paying attention to it. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So tell us a little bit about it. What do you want to talk about? Well, let me tell you the story to begin awesome. with. I, I often start our seminars that way. It gives people a background. Back Around 2003, we were doing some work with electrical simulation with a device known as VitalSim, which, you know, at at one point in time was very, very prominent. Now there are many different types, but we were looking at that and trying to decide if it was something we should do or not do. And uh, the company invited us to go to a training seminar, which was in Birmingham, Alabama. And we went, there were eight of us, Joan Arvidsson in a pediatric group, Michael Brower, Giselle, myself, and an adult group. we took the two-day seminar and we definitely remember sitting in the lobby of this hotel when it was all over, usually with a glass of wine, going, okay, I get it. You put the electrodes on and it may matter where you put them. I get that. Okay. And you crank it up slowly until you see the, either the muscle jerk or the patient jerk or somebody's going to jerk. And then you have them swallow something. But being academics, we pre-read about this, and it was very clear that you have to do it with some type of exercise. So we spent the next six months emailing back and forth and working as a focus group to develop an exercise program. And it was simply called the No Name Exercise Program. Awesome. That's what it was called. And the first person, we put out a call, we got IRB approval and put out a call, and the first person who contacted us and said, I'd like to be in your study, was a man called Hannibal McNeil, wonderful gentleman, about 83 at the time, had survived a brainstem stroke, had survived base of tongue cancer. And according to him, despite his therapist, he was weaned himself off his feeding tube. But he was one of these guys that was eating all day long, still not doing a good job maintaining his weight. He was educated. He was a retired optometrist, so he wasn't not health educated. But Giselle has this thing she does when she puts somebody in therapy. Day one, she says, what's your dream meal? What would you like to eat if all goes well? And he said, Wendy's hamburger and French fries. That, that's interesting. For okay. Yep. okay. <laughs> so we gave him the nickname Hannibal the Cannibal. That was his nickname. And so we, we continued. He got better, of course. And, and I shouldn't say, of course, God looking. Uh, He got better and um, went on to eat a regular diet and about three or four years later had another bleed and died in his sleep. Oh, Yeah, it was a sad day. His wife sent us a letter and since he was the first one we wrote back and said, could we name the program after him? So that's where the McNeil comes from. The first man either brave enough or foolish enough to let us experiment. I I still don't know which, (laughs) 20 years later. And so that's it. And then... You know, being clinical researchers, we kept using the program clinically and we thought, okay, listen, if this is going to be any good, we should pick really tough cases. You know, if we just pick easy cases, it, yeah, do we prove anything? So we picked the toughest cases we could find and, and we kept going and kept getting successes. And I swear to God, I, in the last 15 years, I've probably prayed more over dysphagia therapy than I've ever prayed in my life. Because <laughs> some of these people would come in the door and I would say to Giselle, this is not going to work. And by God, it worked. And, awesome. And, you know, that's been a blessing and a curse because one of the myths about the McNeil approach now has been it's only for chronic patients with severe dysphagia. 
and nothing could be further from the truth. We saw a patient just last fall came from out of state, a cancer survivor on a feeding tube whose wife was a dietitian in a hospital. And at the end of the first week, she sent him home and he said to her, will you call my wife? And she goes, yeah, I'm happy to talk to her. But why? He said, because I told her I was coming down here for this three week swallowing boot camp program. And if I go home after a week, she's going to think I was in Florida fooling around. <laughs> Somebody please call her and tell her, you know? So, I mean, those kinds of, I mean, yes, you can use it with mild patients. We, uh, as, as we get into the research, we'll talk about some of the, the different types of patients that we've seen in our scene, but, um, and that's kind of the story. It grew from there. It's had different names over the years. Oh. It wasn't until well, internally, never externally. Okay. We, we published a paper or two without a name on it. And then the McNeil name came about. But at, at one point in time, it was literally called Shut Up and Swallow Therapy. Awesome. That sounds and, like Giselle. Yeah. And the <laughs> Shut Up was for the clinicians because <laughs> they, were, they were talking too much and not working the patient hard. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I love it. I love it. So that's that's kind of the story about how we started this and who McNeil was and and how we got going. And, and then it became an, an integration of trying to understand, did it work? Is it as good or better than anything else? And are there certain limitations, certain patients that maybe. Hmm. So we spent the last nearly 20 years now, 16, 17 years, and we're still doing it. Awesome. Uh, a matter of fact, our clinical fellow is next door treating three cases this afternoon. And so we're trying to expand the patient types that we study to understand the limitations and the benefits. We uh, every now and then tweak the procedures a little bit. We've come up with some new things that we teach in our seminars that weren't there initially, but the program itself hasn't changed. And we are continuing to learn, as we say, one patient at a time. Awesome. But I think I, I'm excited to hear more about the research. I know I've heard of it, but, you know, so many people say, what is this elusive MDTP program? Is there even any research out there to support it? Yeah, of course, I'm biased uh, <laughs> yes. since I was involved with most of it. Um, other centers are starting to, I think there's one paper in the U.S. from a U.S. group that published something a couple of years ago. And uh, there's some people in Japan that have been studying it. We've published about eight or nine papers over the years on it. Our first paper was what we call an effect paper. So we had this program and did it have a clinical effect? And so that's when we recruited people like McNeil, some of the very difficult cases that have had, I think the average duration was about six years. They were outpatients. They came to our outpatient clinic and um, they all got better in three weeks. The ones that were on feeding tubes, the majority got off. Not everybody gets off the feeding tube, but all increased oral intake. So it's a very functional base. But, you know, we made a huge mistake in that first study because we were still doing the research on electrical stem. And so we had all the patients got vital stem as well as this new therapy. Gotcha. And when it was all over, we looked at ourselves and went, how could we be so stupid? Yeah. You know, because where did we get the effect from? Right. So we had, then did a second effect study with just the therapy and a little bit bigger. I had, I think, nine cases in the second study. And again, everybody got better. Awesome. And three weeks. They, we had to control the amount of therapy, obviously, for research. So they all got better. So now we said, well, we've done two studies that show we can get a clinical effect. And when we say clinical, we mean functional. The patient is eating more. We follow our patients, some of them for years, because they become lifelong friends, but certainly up to six months. Yeah. And we've never had a chest infection, never had a UTI, never had a hospitalization related to swallow. I mean, people have had heart attacks. Yes, yeah. second strokes, but never had a problem related to swallowing. So we're very fortunate in that regard. So we did that study and we said, now we have to start looking at where this fits in, in the under the umbrella of dysphagia management. And our impression was that it was a rehabilitative approach, not a compensatory approach or a compensation approach. And the way we define those is that compensations are short-term adjustments that help patients get through difficult times. But there's some expectation that the patient's going to get better and then maybe go back to regular eating again. And of course, there are those, some unfortunate patients in difficult situations that never can go back to regular eating because their system is just so devastated. So we took this group and then we started looking at 
we said if it's, if it's rehabilitative, we should see an improvement in the movement of the impaired swallowing mechanism. So we measured all the things that people like to measure, you know, hyoid movement, laryngeal movement, laryngeal closure, upper sphincter opening, tongue pressure, pharyngeal pressure. We measured everything. We tortured the living by God oh. out of the patients. That's <laughs> <laughs> great. Uh, I, I often, I still joke, when I see the slide that I use in the summer, I said, maybe these people started swallowing better because they wanted to avoid me doing this. Right, again. right. And what we demonstrated both in, in imaging studies like endoscopy and fluoroscopy and in measurements like lingual palatal pressure, pharyngeal manometry, and movement characteristics, that we were improving the movement of the impaired swallow mechanism. So there was a significant physiologic effect, both in terms of motor learning, they learned a better pattern, in terms of the strength of the swallow, the speed of the swallow, and the coordination of the swallow. And we published not only Giselle and myself, but our fellows like Isaac Sia and Yue Lan from China have published a few papers over the years on speed of swallowing, velocity of swallowing, kinematic changes, pressure changes, and so on. So we've documented all that in the literature. That, and we now firmly believe that the McNeil approach is a swallowing rehabilitation approach. It actually does make a positive impact on the impaired swallow mechanism and the functional benefit for the patient is they're eating more and they're eating safely. Again, you know, we knock wood, we've never had a complication uh, of everybody that we've treated through this program. Beautiful. Yeah. So then, uh, you know, Giselle is a, is a speech pathologist, but she's also an epidemiologist and biostatistician, which uh, scares most of us, including yep, me. Yep, yep. <laughs> yeah, like having a conversa dinner conversation with her can be very interesting. <laughs> she starts using terms and I, I look at her like I pretend I know yeah. what she's saying, but I really don't. So if you're a clinician out there and you've listened to her lecture and you don't understand, don't feel bad. <laughs> she's a brilliant woman. <laughs> well, yeah, she's definitely the smarter of this pair. <laughs> but... Um, so she asked a simple question. Okay, we, we've got, we've seen the physiologic changes. We're seeing the functional benefits, but is it any better than anything else that's out there? Which is a simple question. Valid question, yeah. But it's very good. And so uh, it's hard to do those type of studies. So we started with what's called the case control study, which is about middle of the ladder in terms of evidence base. You know, it's, it's not high, it's not low, it's about the middle. And we compared it to some work that Michael Grower and I had done with uh, the Effortful Swallow and EMG Biofeedback, where our patients got better. So we're, we're comparing two treatments where the patients all got better. But what we reported in that paper that was published a few years ago was the people that got the McNeil approach, and this is very agrammatical, so forgive me, got more better. Yeah. Better, better, -er, whatever word you want to use. Uh, and any way we looked at it, the outcomes, were better. And there was a, a secondary learning that we couldn't really put in the paper because it was kind of anecdotal. But what we learned that in our own clinicians, the decisions made in the traditional therapy approach, the biofeedback approach, we call them aspiration-driven. Because what we noticed is that there'd be, we had to, you have to transcript all the charts. We go through the charts and you would see patient coughed, bolus volume reduced. Or, or patient cleared throat, went to different material, as opposed to following a very systematic approach where you say, okay, that's good. We understand this. Now we're going to keep going forward and do this. So uh, that's one of the side effects that we learned there. And, and I've come to believe that a lot of traditional therapy is, and this is going to sound horrible, and I apologize, fear-driven therapy. Yeah, oh, very much, 100%. We're so worried about doing something bad to our patients by putting something in their airway that we make decisions that aren't in the patient's best interest. Yeah. Okay? Now that said, I will tell you within this approach, the meal approach, and we preach this in our seminars, it's a very conservative approach. You, you really don't, the patient has to prove to you that they can do something before you advance them or, or give them an attribute. You don't assume, you don't guess, you don't fill in the blanks. The, the burden of proof is on the patient. Beautiful. And, and that, that's important for us to keep in mind. So we did that. And then the last study, I think it's the last, I'm not even sure that it's, it's been reviewed. It needs to be revised and resubmitted. It's actually a clinical trial. And this was done in stroke rehab. 
in a stroke rehabilitation hospital. I, I can't really tell you where, but it was done by a group totally independent from us. Awesome. Giselle had an NIH grant to do it, and she coordinated the effort, but the actual work was done by field clinicians, nobody that, that we control. And it, it was a beautiful study because even though the sample wasn't large, there were only 53 cases. It was so well controlled, and it was what we call a double-blind, placebo-controlled clinical trial. And we compared uh, the McNeil approach with vital stim, traditional therapies such as Mendelssohn, effortful swallow, et cetera. And then the McNeil approach with sham vital stim, which is the beauty. Uh, Giselle and Yorick Whiting got together and found a company that made them a fake vital stim unit. And clinicians really couldn't tell whether it was real or not. And at the end, the group that came out the best was the group that got McNeil plus the sham. And it was even better than McNeil plus the vital stem. And that paper hopefully will be published in 2019. It just needs some tweaking. Awesome. And then, so we've come all the way from a case series to show effect all the way up now to, to a clinical trial. And along the way, documenting many of the physiologic changes that we've seen. Overnight success. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I was, I was six when we started this. So <laughs> you can imagine. Well, that's great. But that's where the research has gone. And we continue. We're, we're writing a, a case study up now. It looks at change in spontaneous swallowing frequency as the patient improved in the McNeil program. It's a single case. And the relationships are staggering. Yes, she made progress in therapy. Her spontaneous swallowing improved. And it's just, we're now trying to think, what does this really mean in terms of how the McNeil approach is impacting the physiology of the impaired swallow mechanism? So we're still learning, Teresa, almost. Yeah. With every patient we see, we learn something new. Yeah. I'd like to take a minute to thank our sponsor, EndoHD. EndoHD is a true high-definition endoscopy system created specifically for SLPs by an SLP for conducting fee studies. Their system allows you to store 100,000 10-minute studies. That's a whole crap ton of studies. On a highly maneuverable cart, integrated stereo audio with remote access for service. At Altara Vision, they combine cutting-edge technology with clinician-inspired devices and phenomenal customer service to make the best imaging devices in the country. Let's go to www.ndohd.com forward slash contact to discuss your specific fee systems requirements, pricing, or to request a live product demonstration. That's www.ndohd.com forward slash contact. Tell me, are you guys using anything specific to measure that stuff? Like, obviously, you guys are in a research center, so you sometimes have, you know, yeah. more tools um, at your disposal. Yeah, we did. Back in the day, as we like to say, we were big advocates of the K-Digital Swallowing Workstation. Okay. We had a lot of different measures, right? We could measure respiration patterns, uh, lingual pressures, uh, EMG. We, you know, we moved four years ago. We've had to rebuild our clinic, rebuild our lab. Uh, and so we're still in that process, but we now have respiratory measures. We have SEMG again. We have lingual pressures. We have endoscopy, fluoroscopy. So we're still measuring, but I'm not sure we really have to measure the physiology so much. We've got four or five papers that, that all pretty much agree that the physiology does change in a positive way. And of course, you know, the patients don't care. Yeah. Yeah. When was the last time a patient came to you and said, Hey, Teresa? I'd like some therapy so my hyoid bone can move a little bit. Right. Yeah. Every day. Every yeah. day. Yeah. yeah. They, they want steak. They right. want beer, you know? Right. And, right. And so, I mean, that that's what's up. But we have to, from a from an understanding right. point of view, right. we have to understand what this program does. Right. And I think from the, the clinical side, I think that was one thing that I was so blown away about is that you don't need all these fancy tools. This is oh, literally God, no. a program of swallowing and anybody can do it anywhere. So. You know, there, there are so many things that are unique and, and what a lot of clinicians struggle with when, when they take the seminars and we get a lot of emails back and forth is that it's a program. It, it's not like uh, stick your tongue out and swallow a hundred times. Right. It's not like that at all. It's a, and what you do in the assessment directly impacts what you do in treatment. I mean, you use the assessment to inform the treatment. And a lot of times clinicians will send us a case, even though we say, don't give us specific cases because it's not ethical for us to comment. <laughs> and the one question we send back is, tell us how you arrived at these at this step, because what did you do to assess? And too many times we realize that clinicians are not assessing the way we ask them to assess. Gotcha. And, you know, it, it's it's not complex. What we've done is taking things, Giselle and I have been lifelong clinicians, Mike Grow or other people that had input to this. 
we're tweaking it a little bit. That's all. So it's things that you've done your whole career. It's not a brand new, oh, I got to throw everything out and start over. It's I got to tweak this a little bit. Yeah. And I got to think a different way. I got to think a different way. And, and that's the big issue. The other part that I, that I really have become impressed with is the issue is it has low treatment burden yes. on the patient. Yes. After the patient gets through the first couple of accommodation sessions and understands the form and what they're supposed to be doing, as far as they're concerned, they're just trying to eat. You know? and, and some of the milder patients literally become their own therapists as they go along. They'll, I watch them on video say to Jill, that wasn't good. And you know, she goes, you're right, I wasn't. And they keep going that way. So the burden is really low, which means the adherence is really high. Awesome. And the, the motivation is really high once yeah. they get into the program. So I'm, those are the two things that, that that I think a lot of people have to understand. The hard part, clinicians' thought process. And we just have to try to tweak a little bit the way clinicians think about rehabilitating patients. It's not a compensation. It's not a management. You're not simply changing a diet and watching. You're getting in there and changing something about that impaired mechanism. And as a result, your patient's going to eat more and it's going to happen fast. Yeah. I think, I mean, I just love it so much because I think it actually requires a skilled clinician to do. You know, sometimes we yes. say this dysphagia therapy, a monkey can do, you know, a monkey yeah. can tell you to swallow 10 times, yeah. but this protocol really needs a skilled clinician. And then on the flip side, like you said about the buy-in, I mean, that's huge. We, how many times do we have patients that say, oh, I don't want to do these stupid exercises because they, you know, they're not transferable. Yeah. You know, how many times is sticking your tongue out 30 times transferable to eating a steak down the road? Yeah, So exactly. I mean, and because it is eating and I, and I always credit my language therapy instructor when I was a master's student back when we used to carve our class notes on rocks. You know, yeah, yeah. Um, and I was a horrible language therapist. I, I really was. And she said to me one day after a set, remember when they used to sit behind that one way mirror with the headphones? She came out and said, Mr. Crary, you're not really very good at this. And I said, I know. And she said, Let me tell you a little hint about therapy. If it looks like therapy, it's probably not very good. It should be functional and it should be natural. And, and that's one of the things that we brought to this McNeil approach. From the patient's point of view, it's highly functional. I'm eating. You know, yes, there's a startup period where you have to learn the form of the swallow. And, and in some cases, it's more difficult than others. But once we get into it and we're just strengthening the mechanism, which improves speed and coordination, they're just eating. Yeah. And, and, you know, and they're psyched about it. And we always take them, the people we treat, we always take them out for a meal someplace at the end. It's, I love it. Yeah. We ask them, we take them to a restaurant, make them eat in public. Yeah. That's usually their last session. Awesome. So. All right. So let me ask you the million dollar question. Yeah. Why is it so secretive? I know the answer, but I want you to tell the people. Well, there's a, there's a couple of reasons it's secretive. Number one, it started with just me and Giselle. <laughs> there's only two of us and we're tired. Uh, we're, we're doing as much as we can, but we have, we're in the process of vetting uh, two additional teams. And I think I can announce them here. There's three people, Yvette McCoy from Maryland, who, who I think a lot of people know. Uh, Lisa Ligorio, who's at Rush in Chicago, who was one of our doctoral students and a postdoc fellow years ago at Florida. And then Diane Longnecker, uh, Frazier, who's uh, in Texas and worked, received the training when she was at MD Anderson and worked there for many years in their program. And then she's over at Baylor Med now. And all of them have multiple years experience and they're going to be helping us get this out more. Awesome. The other reason, the other thing that people comment on is the non-disclosure agreement. And, yeah. you know, and I would, I would just say, you know, I've been, I've been trying to learn a little bit more about business as we move forward because somebody has to stay home and run this. Thing. Right, right, right. Uh, I think you understand that very, very much. Well. So, very much so. Yeah. yeah. And um, most businesses have these and they don't even, they don't even think about them. You know, people that take LSVT training, they have to sign this thing as well, but I'm going to give you two examples of why it's important. And for us, the reason is we don't want this diluted. Yeah. We don't want this watered down, mix and mix and match with other things. And that's why we treat it and we educate the way we do about it. A few years ago, uh, I was in a, in the, my lab in a different place. And from the next room, I heard a rooster crowing over and over again. I heard this bloody rooster crowing. So at the end of the 
session, I walked over and I said to the doctor, I said, what was the rooster? And he said, oh, I was doing LSVT. And I said, well, I'm not certified, but I've had a lot of talks with Lori Remig, and I don't think there's any chickens in LSVT, you know? And he goes, well, there's not. It's LSVT-like. And then, then I had to give him the old, you probably shouldn't do that. If you're not well-trained, it's really unethical. And, of course, that went over not so well. <laughs> so that was one story. People just, they change things, and they then, then you're not following the evidence. Once you change the program, you're not following an evidence-based approach anymore. And the second one happened this year. A woman came to us with some brainstem issues, secondary to surgery. And we evaluated her and Giselle said, well, we'd like to enroll you in a course of the McNeil therapy program. And the woman got really stand. Oh, no, I'm not going to do that. I'm not doing that. I've had that. It doesn't work. And Giselle said, oh, okay. Um, tell me about your experience with it. And she said, well, I went to the therapist. I won't say where, but I went to the, and she made me swallow 100 teaspoons of ice chips a day. And we just started laughing and we went, you didn't have this therapy program. So we did some investigation. It turns out that a therapist had left the facility, but left her manual behind. And another therapist who had never taken the training program, picked it up and tried to do it on her own. Awesome. And, and that was their expression of it. And so yeah. the idea of, of see one, teach one, do one that we hear about in medicine all the time doesn't fly here. You know, yeah. be patient with us. We'll, where we increased the number of seminars. I think we're doing 14 or 15 this year. That's awesome. And we're doing the best we can. We're trying to put a website together so people can get more information and, and communicate with us that way. But the NDA will stay in place simply because it, it's our attempt to say to people, we don't want this watered down. We spent nearly 20 years researching it, developing it. We're fairly confident it works with a vast majority of the patients that we see. I mean, we're treating Parkinson's patients now. We have an MSA patient on board. Awesome. You know, what, what else do we have? So mild dementia. Uh, we have a myopathy patient recently. that we're, And it, we're looking at, for some of these progressive patients, can it work as a maintenance approach as well as a rehabilitation approach? And yeah. the answer is, based on a small number of cases now, the answer is, yeah, it looks like it can. You know, we can keep the diet level up and they're not getting sick followed over time. So we don't want the technique watered down. And that's yeah. the whole reason for the NDA. It, it, we are uh, in response to our participants, to our providers. We're going to put two slide decks on our new website when it gets done. One is for clinicians that want to do an in-service that want to talk about it. And the other is for academics that want to teach it as part of their class. Beautiful. So that way, you know, we can say, yeah, certainly we want you to talk about it. So I teach it in my class, but I don't teach the students how to do it without any clinical experience, they're not ready. Yeah. And that's why we don't have students in our seminars. They just don't have the experience to understand what it is you're trying to do. Yeah, that makes sense. But I think, you know, what I, the questions I'm always answering is it's like, well, why aren't they offering it more? Why are, is there only three times a year? And I think people forget that the two of you are researchers with full-time jobs and you're not just out peddling a course it's old <laughs> where is it just wears you down getting on an airplane you know, yeah. you know what it's like you fly out one day you work then you fly back the next day and then it takes you then you got to go back to work then yeah you go back to work and your, your boss says what's the matter with you yeah <laughs> Oh, nothing. I'm fine. It's been working 20 days straight. That's it. Yeah. 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 We literally this year in 2019, I think since the Christmas break, we've been home maybe four weekends. Oh my goodness. Between, between vetting the new team, we've had to fly them in and we spend weekends locked in a hotel conference room trying to get there. And then they know the program. That's yeah. not an issue. What we're trying to do is get their presentation up to speed, yeah. teach them how to present it to other people, what to say, maybe what not to say. Yeah. Things, things that we've learned the hard way. Yeah. And we're getting there. They're ready to go. So hopefully, knock wood, we'll be able to, to increase our exposure in the coming year. So awesome. We'll yeah, I know. Everybody's excited. I think I think what I love most about it when I went to it is I didn't realize how it could be used across all populations and across all facilities. It can be used in acute care. It can be used in skilled nursing. It can be used in home health. You know, yep. you hear rebuttals in all settings. Well, I can't use it here. I can't use it there. But you really, truly can. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, you know, and we one of the questions we get a lot is, well, what if I can't do it five days a week? We did it five days a week 
for theoretical reasons, because with sensory motor learning, the literature says the more frequent you do something, the faster and the better you learn the motor plan. So we did that, but it's not realistic to do it every day. Sometimes insurance plans say, no, three days a week. Sometimes you're so busy, you know, you're doing home health, you can only get out there twice a week. So in the seminar, Giselle now gives people very specific strategies to do if you can, with the caveat that your patient may take longer in therapy. And, and that's, you know, if you do like uh, at my age, I've had to hire a personal trainer. I walk between two and five miles a day and twice a week I go to a personal trainer. I'm maintaining, I'm not gaining weight, I'm not losing weight. But if I could, um, you know, work out five days a week and, and stick to a diet and do weights and everything, I would probably lose a percentage of body fat and gain more lean muscle. And, and that's kind of what the same analogy. We often tell clinicians, when you do this approach, you basically become a personal swallowing trainer for your patient. You're there to guide them. You're working on the form of the swallow, and then you're taking them through a set of conditioning exercises to make that swallow stronger, faster, and more coordinated. Beautiful. So that's the analogy we use. Which I think is, that's what we should be doing. It, it makes sense. Every now and then we'll get a we'll get a speech pathologist who says, "Well, I was an athletic trainer before, and this makes perfect sense to me." Right, right. right you know, or you know, I would, my undergraduate was in physical therapy, and I this is great. Yeah. And uh, it, it amazes me when you look at what we do in our profession. We don't train our young people in exercise physiology or muscle conditioning or or, or things like that. We you know we just don't do it. Right. We just hand people worksheets that have the same exercises over and over and give everybody yep. the same cookie cutter plan. Yeah, we've, yeah, we, yeah. I just uh, don't know how we got there. Uh, you know, uh, I can remember in the late seventies when I first started doing this, uh, early eighties, late seventies, you know, I did the same thing everybody else did. I went around doing oral motor exercises, ooh, ee, ooh, ah, ah, and then stroking everybody's fascial pillow with a cold mirror. And, and then, you know, as the research came out later on, because we've grown in the last 30, 40 years, amazingly, as Very a much so. profession, yeah. Yeah. the information now is, there's a lot more than there was. And, and I really, I look back and I sometimes just laugh at myself and go, but that was the evidence then. That's what we knew how to do. Clinicians now have a really big task in front of them. They got to go through this mountain of evidence that's coming at them from published literature, and now something I totally don't understand, social media, <laughs> and go, is this good stuff? It's a blessing and a curse. Yeah. Is it not good stuff? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know? and, so I just, and so I have to try to stay off these things a lot. You do, because, you do. Because I, I just go crazy. Your cardiologist just, probably wants you far, far away from that. Yeah, I, I'm old-fashioned. I try yeah. to look at the literature, and I try to go, is it a good study? Is it telling us something, you know, and is it a not so good study? Is What's it telling us? And and then try to pick and choose. And, and it's not cookie cutter. You're right. It's not. Every patient is different. And it's, we're not prescriptive yet, but I think we're getting closer to being able to say certain types of patients, you know, the term that some researchers use with the phenotype, which means the profile of the patient will do better in this type of therapy. And, you know, we've, we've got that, I don't want to say a leg up, but we have a really good idea now when we look at a patient who's going to do well and who we have concerns about. Who would you say you have concerns about? The biggest concern I have are the cancer patients that have big surgical resections. Okay. We, we have a lady coming in now. She's had, a few years ago, she had cancer of the pharynx and she got radiation. And more recently, she had lingual cancer and she said more than half her tongue removed. We're going to take her on yeah. for two reasons. One, Giselle treated a patient last year by telehealth, actually, from another country. Awesome. Had, had about half her tongue removed. It, literally, she was a high school friend of Giselle's. Oh, wow. Did it as a favor. Yeah. Woman, woman went back to eating. Yeah. I mean, yes, some adaptations for the missing tissue, but she went back to eating. And part of it was the pharynx was working. So we, we scoped this lady. We did a fees on her. And we noticed that the pharynx wasn't as bad as we thought it might have been given our history. Yeah. We call these positive movement findings. We look for things that suggest to us that there's room to improve the swallowing movement. And we saw them. And so yeah. we're going to put her in therapy. We know we have to adjust for the oral component. And we'll do that. But I think you know, I, a year ago, I would have said, no way. 
Yeah. Too much tissues gone. No way. Now I'm going, but she's got some good things going on. So I think we can make some progress with her. Awesome. Uh, uh, let's see. You know, like I told you, I pray a lot more than I used to. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Are there, so that that's really it. Are there any other populations you don't think it? Really, you know, limited cognition is a problem. Yeah. Yeah. Because it does um, require patient involvement. So patient, yeah. it's like going to personal training. Yeah. Uh, you know, you got to bring something to the party, so to speak. Yeah. Patient has to understand that they need to try and swallow at the very basic. So if you have a patient with advanced Alzheimer's and, and you know, sitting there and yelling at them to swallow isn't going to do anything. The food's going to sit in their mouth. Oftentimes, if you get into the pharynx, the swallow is okay, right. but they some get it back to the food process. So they don't do well. We had a patient last year, though, we were told, came from out of state, brain stem stroke, wife was a nurse. So I'm talking to her on the phone before they came. Yes, he talks. Yes, he walks. Yep, he's doing fine. Just can't swallow. So when they get here, and the poor man was a train wreck. I mean, he oh. took like three steps with a walker. He could say a few words, uh, but he would like kind of almost waxing and waning attention. And therapy wasn't going well. Then all of a sudden, something clicked in week two, and he picked right up. Awesome. And he, he left your eating. I'm still not sure what clicked, but it was something in the cognitive domain that, that Giselle was able to get through to this guy and, and, and get him going, and he, he left your eating. And at the end, I said to his wife, why didn't she tell me more? He'd had not just a brainstem stroke, what they call shower strokes, four or five. Oh. So he had thalamic issues, he had cortical issues. Oh my gosh, yeah. Yeah. And she said to me, literally said, I thought if I told you everything, you wouldn't take him on. <laughs> and he'd already failed like three years of, of therapy. Yeah, so wow. We don't know what the cut points are yet. We yeah. don't know where, but what we do know is this. If, if the patient you're looking at is a candidate for rehabilitation where you can talk to that patient and either they can understand you and at least do what you're asking to do, then you can consider this approach as appropriate. Yeah. At least that much. The other thing you have to consider with the patients, and we're talking more and more about this in, in the recent seminars that we've added on, as we learn, one is physical frailty. And, and I like to tell clinicians, watch their respiratory pattern. Because when, when you and I climb a set of stairs, the first thing that changes, well, our heart rate goes up. Nobody can see that. But what you can see is somebody's breathing harder. Yeah. Respiration goes short and shallow and more rapid. So if your patient's doing that, maybe they need a break. And then the other one that we're paying more attention to now with the team we're working with now is cognitive frailty. And that is, you know, the patient, they may not have a diagnosed dementia, but they also don't multitask very well. And with each passing birthday, I think I may resemble that, by the way. <laughs> You know, and it's just, and you just watch the behavioral changes, you know, when they just shut you down, yeah. they're just not going to do it anymore. And then maybe all they need is a break, a little rest period to come back. And that implies to the assessment as well as the treatment. So yeah. those are the things we're looking at. We're wondering, how do we deal with those patients? And then, you know, we're still extending our research program into other populations as well and, and, and trying to do some programmatic research where we have big samples yeah. And, then, and then case by case of some interesting, you know, maybe low prevalence type of diseases and see, will it work with this? Yeah. Because okay. you know how it goes, is it, whether it's by email or in face seminar, every clinician is mostly worried about their most difficult case. Yep. Yep. As, as are you, as am I. Yep. Yep. And so that's the one they always what about bring up. about the hundred other ones? <laughs> yeah. And they, and it, and it yeah. just, I listened to every, I got an email every day and said, well, I took your seminar, you know, like six months ago and I finally found a patient and I went, well, aren't you treating anybody? Right, for six right. months, you're not treating anybody because this really has a lot of applicability. Yeah, absolutely. And we're, we're very honest. It doesn't help anybody, but the ones that we've helped the least have really been the oncology patients that have had the radiation plus the big surgeries. Okay. Those are the guys that tend, we can still make progress with some of them, but not as much as you can with other patients. I think this program just brings so much hope to the world of dysphagia. I mean, how many patients do we see? I see a ton of patients where the doctor tells them you'll never swallow again. You'll have this feeding tube for life. There's nothing that can be done. You know, and like you said, they're walking, talking, cognitively, completely with it. Oh, yep. Doctor said, I'll never eat again. You know, and those are the patients that I think it's just heartbreaking, but this program would probably be extremely beneficial for. 
Well, there's a guy in the next room right now. I don't know if you might hear him cough every now and then. And that's exactly what he was told. His, yeah. his surgeon, his ENT surgeon said he's a cancer survivor. And his surgeon said, him, you have two options, a feeding tube or a laryngectomy. Yeah. And uh, he's eating. He's, yeah. he's struggling with thin liquids a bit. And it may be a vocal fold issue. We're, we've taken a look at those. And he may need an injection to kind of get some Boeing taken care of. But we don't know. We're still trying to figure it out. But he's eating regular foods. Beautiful. I think today had pizza and a hamburger was his Sounds great. Today. Yeah. So I'm, yeah. I'm hoping for leftovers myself. Yeah. 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 Awesome. <laughs> so, yeah. I guess I, I got kind of another controversial question. And sure. I, I personally, I mean, I just, from my own personal beliefs, I think it is a lot about the diet because food means so much to quality of life to so many of us, but yeah. so many people in this field say it's not about the diet. It's just about treating the impairments. And I struggle with that because Obviously, we want to improve the impairments, but really, like you said, all this guy wants to do is eat pizza. Yeah. You know, I think we very much do have a role in getting them eating what they want to eat again. I, I think there's a couple of things that, that maybe play into this. And, and let me preface this by saying this is my opinion. Yeah, and, yeah. And that's my um, opinion, too. And I, I struggle yeah. with it. <laughs> yeah. But my opinion in three bucks will get you a latte. And awesome. stuff. But it is my opinion. <laughs> I, I think that the backlash that we're seeing currently to, to thick liquids and diet modifications. And you've probably read the same papers coming out of nutrition and medicine that I've read that were yeah. being criticized. Yeah. You know, that CMS a few years ago was not happy with long-term care. And they said, well, we don't need speech therapists and they're doing this type of stuff. I shouldn't say speech therapists. That's a very old term, but yes. I'm a very old guy. And so I think the pendulum to diet modification swung too far. And we started using it on too many patients, patients that might have actually been rehabilitation cases where we could have done more yeah. with them as opposed to just modify their diet thicker and watch them. Okay. And I think people look at that and go, it's not helping. And then there's some other stuff that we in the group of, in Australia published that in, you might be putting people at hydration risk, you know, by keeping them long term on modified diets and so on and so forth. At least the question has now been raised. Now we're coming back and saying some of these people can, in fact, be rehabilitated. And what I, what I mean by that is we can make physiologic benefit to the movement of the swallowing mechanism. And as I teach all my students and when I hammer this in the seminars, swallowing is movement. And that's what we're trying to improve. Okay? And as a result of that, they're eating more. And so as Giselle goes through the treatment component of, of the McNeil approach in our seminars, she points out how what happens in therapy helps you to systematically advance the patient's diet. So you, you go from wherever they are, NPO or puree or whatever, up to a normal diet, but you're, it's done systematically. You're not guessing. Yeah. The patient is showing you in therapy, I can handle this. And then you add that to their diet and add that to their diet. So it is important. And that's what the patients want. Yeah. All right. Well, let's see. Any Anything else you want to cover? Oh, let me, I, I actually tried to make some notes here. Let, let me address some myths. How's yeah, that? Awesome. Common myths that people have said to us. Well, one I've kind of hit is that it's, somebody say, well, it's only for chronic patients. So I, I'm not going to use it in my SNF, in my rehab cases, or in my rehab hospital, or even acute care. Nothing could be further from the truth. We have not published research on doing it in acute care hospitals, but Dr. Ligorio, Lisa Ligorio from Rush, when she was our fellow, uh, our research fellow, actually did a small case series. Unfortunately, because it was done clinically, she couldn't take the data with her to write it up. But her impression was you could actually advance a patient's diet faster using this systematic approach. Yeah. And, and I would really love to see somebody independent from our team yeah. do that and say, Either yes, it does work, or no, it didn't work. I mean, we're not that, we're still researchers, and we still understand that it's not perfect. There's room to grow, and, you know, maybe somebody else will come up with a tweak of it or with a whole different approach that works. That's great. Yeah. Because that means that patients will get better and clinicians will have other options, and I'm yeah. all for it. Yeah. I know. Um, but, have you spoken to, to Kelly Caldwell in South Carolina at all? She's in acute care and she's had some remarkable success. No, we haven't. I mean, it. I know yeah. Kelly. Yeah. She runs the, uh, she started and runs the yeah. Yeah. providers. Yes. Yeah. But every time someone chimes in and says, you know, this can't be used in acute care, she's got 
you know, some wonderful stories. Just, you know, she has such a good, respectful, I'm sure she won't mind me sharing this, but a really good, respectful, mutual relationship with the doctor she works with. And I remember one particular case, she said to the doctor, you know, they said, we're going to put in a peg. And she said, please give me a few days and please let me try MDTP with this patient before you do it. And about five days later, he said, yeah, I guess we don't need the peg. Okay, I so, guess I'm gonna I guess I'm gonna have to go on social yes. media and reach out to Kelly because <laughs> yes. we would love to see her post. I know, I know. Yeah, yeah. You know, She's got a few great concept. stories. Yep. Yep. So, you know, and the other thing is, you know, I've heard people say to us, I, I won't say who, but somebody came to me once and said, Is it true you you tell people to suppress the cough and let them aspirate in this therapy program? <laughs> <laughs> and I looked at this person who I've known for a long time, and I said, "How long?" That have you sounds known? exactly like me. Yes. Yeah. Yes. No, it wasn't you, dear. It wasn't you. <laughs> no, and no, you, no. I'm saying, oh, that sounds exactly like Dr. Prairie. Yeah. Yeah. I said, no, I, not at know, all. We're not. We're not. This is a, such a conservative approach. Yeah. What we tell people is that we have every now and then you'll see a patient who has learned to cough after every swallow, and it has nothing to do with material going into the airway or not. Okay. Nothing to do with it. And so we say to them. Unless you feel that you're having trouble, you know, something airway, don't cough. If you have a reflexive cough, you're not going to suppress it. it. You can't suppress it. Re- it's like that old thing, can you keep your eyes open when you sneeze? Right. I've been trying that for years. The answer is no, in my opinion. Okay. If something goes into your airway and you're sensate, you can feel it, you're going to cough. Yeah. Okay. So we know that. So no, that's not the case. And And I think because we are very, very conservative in how we make decisions and how we teach clinicians to make decisions in this approach. That's one of the reasons that we're not seeing complications and clinicians aren't emailing us and goes, oh my God, I use this and my patient got sick. No, we don't, I can't yeah. think of a case where that's ever happened. So let's see. Um, I told you, I think it's a rehabilitation effect. I've covered the research issues. Oh, one of the common mistakes that, that people tend to make, I said, is they don't follow the assessment protocol. And, and, you know, our assessment protocol is is pretty simple. We develop some of the techniques. Our clinical exam is the MASA, the Man Assessment of Swallowing Ability. And I know people are a bit upset because it's not for sale. Or somebody told me recently you can buy it on Amazon for like over $1,000. Yeah, it's, yeah, you guys are okay. making well, so much money never, off this right now. Here, here's, here's a little <laughs> bit of, here's a secret release coming at you. Awesome. We're in the final stages of working with Apple to have it released as an app with a manual on the Apple store. Beautiful. We When we started this, we had no idea how complex it was going to be. I was going to say, I can't believe you still have hair. Uh, it's a wig. <laughs> okay. okay. <laughs> I'm kidding. Uh, but it's been, it's been almost a year now that we've been trying to do this. We have some wonderful programmers up in North Carolina that have, the app's ready to go. And what the app, you sit there on your cell phone and you just, you, you have to give the exam. So you have to know the exam, but you just, you just punch it in what the what you believe the patient's response to be. And once you hit done, it calculates the total score. It converts it to a dysphagia severity rating, something I didn't used to believe in, but now I do, the aspiration risk index, and, and it prints out the profile for you. Beautiful. And it saves, we've calculated, it saves between 15 to 20 minutes per patient. Awesome. Do this. So it's, awesome. it's just a time saver. Yeah. Well, and I think that's going to be huge come the new payer systems changing in October. And really, everybody's emphasizing we need actual data. We need yeah. tools to measure, measurable tools for our patients. So I think that'll be huge. Something and so validated very helpful. that you yeah. can do quickly. I mean, yeah. the whole PDPM thing is yeah. identify your patients quickly and, and then treat them. Yep. Yeah. And, and, you know, Giselle and I have had many discussions about this, and we really think it's perfect. For yep. that environment, you, you take the combination, you have the voice to document function, you have the mass to document the clinical profile. And, you know, if you need an imaging study, what's better than to walk into somebody's office with a profile that shows impairments across the board, severe dysphagia, and a moderate aspiration risk? I mean, yep. to me, it doesn't take a rocket scientist. Yeah. Yeah. I would say, hey, let's, let's, if we can't afford to send them to a hospital, but let's get a mobile fusion in here and see what this person can do, yep. you know? Yep. Before we, yeah, so I mean, something along those lines. So yep. that's coming. That's kind of a, that's kind of a sneaky release. And God forgive me if something goes wrong and it doesn't end up on the Apple store, but we're, we're very close. <laughs> yeah. We, by the way, related to the mass and stuff, we firmly believe that clinicians should be using standardized validated tests. And, and as I tell people now, we all, most of us started with children, right? Every test we use was validated. Yeah. Yeah. You know? 
And in, in adults, we it's because it's hard to validate a test. So that's why when Giselle comes out with a MASA and the MASA C for cancer patients, and we came out with a voice and we checked it on head and neck cancer and found that it holds up very well. I mean, that when you use those things, I would like to see more people yes. come out with those things. Okay? Yeah. What's the other question? Oh, the last myth is that, okay, everybody has to have 15 sessions and everybody is going to be miraculously cured in 15 sessions. Not true. As I said earlier, milder cases will go faster. We're sometimes discharging people at the end of the first week. We'll bring them back for a couple of sessions. So six, seven sessions, go home. You're fine. And then severe cases can take longer. Yeah. We present some of those in the seminar that we show examples of very severe cases that do take longer. We chose 15 sessions because it started out as research. We were trying to understand this concept of a treatment program. But it doesn't have to be 15 sessions. Yeah. Awesome. Is that everything? Yeah, I guess. All right. <laughs> this wasn't as bad as I feared. I, what did I tell you? <laughs> How many times have I told you that? You, you know, you were right. <laughs> okay. Somebody that I live with tells me I can be very stubborn. Yes. And personally, I don't think so, but I'm yep. told that a lot. Yep, yep, yep. All five of our kids in addition to my wife. <laughs> yes, I'm sure. I'm sure. It's just fear. That's okay. That's what I said. I'm just, I'm afraid of everything these days. All I want to do is go fishing and drink wines. <laughs> we need to stop working so much, but we didn't really solve your problems here today. So no, but did, did, did we get, get enough content in Very there much that so. people have yep. a better understanding of some of the issues surrounding this? Very much so. Yeah. 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 Okay. So where can people go now to, is it still the FDI2 website? FDI2.com yeah. is the okay. umbrella site. And, and eventually we just met yesterday with a new web team. It's going to be a single portal entry for everybody. And you'll get a unique provider number once you complete the post-test. We're developing things and I can't really tell you what, because, you know, I have a lot of ideas and sometimes they just don't go anywhere. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> but we're putting together a series of more perks for providers. Awesome. New guy that we interviewed says, yep, we can do that. Yep, we can do that. He's got to write some code to integrate different web platforms together, but he's, his team has the skill. That's going to happen in 2019. Beautiful. And our provider list will be up and running by the end of 2019, running as a search engine. So you can just type in where you're located and MDTP, and it will give you who's ever in your area. Beautiful. And then we have a bunch of other perks that we're going to be coming out there. That Basically, we're, we're trying to think of things what can we do to make it easier on a clinician to treat a patient? It, yep. it shouldn't be that hard. No, it shouldn't. It shouldn't. You know? Yeah. And I think I, I commend you guys for making it so for making it available to clinicians and doing as much as you can on your end. You know, it's it's some researchers just drive me bananas with, well, you just got to read the research paper. And it's like, well, it's hard to translate that, you know. Sometimes we need someone to speak to, to talk to, to help us along. So, And, you know, and don't take this the wrong way, but a lot of times researchers are not clinicians. Right. And, they, uh, and that doesn't right. mean that you right. do good research, but if you've never been a clinician, maybe you should temper your enthusiasm a little bit before you tell people that are in the trenches how to do something. Yeah. You know, I mean, and as I review manuscripts, I often, the, the people that are obviously not clinicians, they well, this should be used for everybody. You you studied 10 healthy young college students. That doesn't mean that you should use this approach for everybody who has a stroke or cancer or Parkinson's disease or whatever. No, right. you need to get out and get your hands dirty, get in the field because we all make mistakes. Right, right. And what I tell clinicians now in the seminars is don't sweat the small stuff. You're going to make a mistake. Yeah. It's going to happen. I make mistakes all the time. Yeah. Okay. You're going to do Don't sweat the small stuff. Learn from it, grow from it, and move forward. And if you yeah. can do that, to me, that's a good clinician. Yeah. Awesome. Well, I think we'll end there, Dr. Query. Sounds good, my friend. Thank you for beautiful. this opportunity. Thank you so much. I I'm so sorry it took us so long to get that's together. A, you're forgiven. You finally <laughs> did it, so you're forgiven. All right. The wine's on me next time yes. we get together. Awesome. All right. All right. <laughs> Bye, Teresa. Bye. So if you would love to hear more of these episodes and get some easily digestible bites of swallowing knowledge, then please leave a review on iTunes or pledge a small amount on patreon.com forward slash swallow your pride because that is what keeps these episodes coming. 
Also, don't forget to subscribe, share with your closest colleagues, and show notes will always be available to download over on SwallowYourPridePodcast.com, where you can also be notified of the latest podcast episodes. Also, credit to Stephanie Jacobson for her incredible editing skills, and thank you so much to all of you for listening.